touching hands Reaching out Touching me Touching you Hello and welcome to episode 121 of section 138. I'm your host, Mark Colley, as always, joined by Bryson and Jacob. How are you guys? Doing okay, Mark. Uh, kind of mixed feelings about this past series against Boston, but either way, I'm doing okay. Yeah, and then there was a Leafs game last night that I'm sure you guys both watched and have lots of thoughts about. How are you, Jacob? Yeah, you know what? I'm glad you mentioned that Leaf game. I am just, you know, I'm praying John Tavares is all right. Maple Leafs captain took a gruesome hit to the head yesterday. It was unavoidable. Uh, Nothing really we can do there. But, you know, hopefully he's okay. He's out of hospital now. But, uh, yeah, like you said, with the Blue Jays, not not a good uh, series for them as well. This was a it was a tough couple days for Toronto fans, Mm -hmm. especially last night, having to go from the the Maple Leafs game to the Blue Jays game and both of them not ending the way people wanted. But overall, I think this weekend or this week, this series could have gone worse for the Blue Jays. You know, losing two to three, there was the opportunity to take first place. Obviously didn't happen after they lost Wednesday night, but it could have been worse. Certainly could have been better. Um, On Tuesday, they win eight to zero in a game that was Probably the best of the season for the Blue Jays. We know we had that 15-1 to game against the Angels earlier this year, but this 8-0 to win was pretty dominant. They had 18 hits, and then Hinjun Ryu went seven innings of shutout ball against the Red Sox, who, of course, as we know, are one of the best offenses in the majors right now. They come back Wednesday, doesn't go as planned. Ross Stripling gives up five runs in the first. Jays can't pull out the comeback win. And then Thursday, yesterday, the most disappointing game of the bunch, the Blue Jays start out 2-0. They give up five runs in the second inning. Um, otherwise, Steven Matz has a pretty good start besides that one inning. The Blue Jays come back, make it 7-5, to and then Rafael Dolis comes out in the ninth inning and blows it. Blue Jays end up losing 8-7. to So overall, of course, not how we want things to go this series. Um, let's start with yesterday's game because I've seen so many people talking about the bullpen management and disappointment in how things were handled in the bullpen. Um, We saw Tyler Chatwood come out for the seventh inning, Jordan Romano come out for the eighth inning, and then Rafael Dolis came out for the ninth inning. Do you disagree with the way Charlie Montoyo managed it? Do you think if he managed it in a different way, maybe had a shorter hook for Dolis or put Romano in the ninth and moved Dolis around, do you think that the Blue Jays may have won this game if it was managed differently in the bullpen? I don't. Uh, honestly, uh, I think Charlie Montoyo made the right decision. He put his best guys against uh, the Red Sox, best guys at the top of their order. And, you know, with Dolis, I, I, you know, I hate to say it, but he just he flat out didn't have it last night. And that is why they ended up losing. And the thing that I'm looking at, you know, when you look at his game log, his season has been pretty up and down. Yes, there's been injuries throughout it, but... You know, he's dabbled with a, a five ERA mid fours. Now it's it's actually mid fives after last night's game. You know, it, he's been shaky this season. And 
I don't necessarily disagree with putting him against the the bottom of the order. He should be able to get those out. He still is a good pitcher. Obviously, last season he was fantastic. So I don't really disagree with that. I, I think if people if people think that Charlie Montoyo is the scapegoat for that game, then that's just a bad excuse in my opinion. He managed it by putting the best guys against the Red Sox best guys. So it, it I don't disagree with it. Sucks that uh, Blue Jays were not able to come out of that because that's a game when you look back at the end of the season, that's one they should have won, and and the series could have gone either way. Obviously, game two they didn't, uh, they I, they just didn't have it all throughout the game. Yesterday was a back and forth. Looked like they were going to come out of it, but then Dolis obviously struggled. Uh, in one inning, he had four hits, three uh, three earned runs. One of those was a home run, only one strikeout. So, not the outing you want from him. It's just sometimes guys just don't have it, and obviously you can hope that Dolis rebounds from that. But that's just it's it's not Charlie Montoya's fault that Rafael Dolis struggled in last night's game. I'll put it that way. It's you can't blame. I don't. I don't think the manager for honestly managing it the best way he could have. You put your best against their best, and that's just sometimes it it doesn't work out. And I I I don't think that Charlie Montoya was wrong with what he did. Uh, I disagree. I think he was wrong, and I think he made the wrong decision with the bullpen management. I think after yesterday's game, I'll start with the, I guess, the rubber match in the game from Thursday, which was yesterday. I, I flat out think that uh, the bullpen management was part of the reason why the Jays lost this uh, this game. I know Charlie Montoya likes his guys. I know the injuries. We know the injuries. We know the entire situation. But Rafael Dolis just hasn't been that guy, Jacob, this year, unfortunately. He's got an ERA of 552. His ERA in the ninth inning alone after, I think he's pitched about five innings in the ninth inning. Sorry, it's been 8.1 innings. An ERA of 432 in the ninth inning. When you want to compare it to somebody like Jordan Romano, who's uh, pitched 5.2 innings, 159 ERA in the ninth, and then other guys like Ryan Barak, pretty much anyone other than Dolis this year has been a better option in the ninth inning, other than Jeremy Beasley, in my opinion. And that's no knock to Dolis. I understand that he was, he's was he been dealing with calf injuries. He recently came off the injured list. But yesterday, in particular, that's not a situation where I'm throwing out Rafael Dolis in the ninth inning. I'm just not. And I'm, I don't agree with how Jordan Romano came out beforehand. I think Jordan Romano should have came out and tried to close the game himself. And like I said, the injuries, of course... There's been a whole whack of uh, problems with the bullpen in terms of that. The workload's been up there. But right now, in a series where, first of all, you start off, I guess, down 5-2 or whatever it was with Steven Matz. Not a very good start from Steven Matz. We all know that. But the Jays managed to come back. And I understand that, to begin with, uh, that's kind of inexcusable for a Red Sox or from the Red Sox standpoint. But for the Blue Jays standpoint, when you want to talk about them, they came back. And they came back in the fifth inning. They tied the game from, I guess, two singles, or a uh, fielding error one, and then Kevin Biggio singled, sorry, later at that. And then, of course, they took the lead in the sixth inning from a Jonathan Davis and Randall Grichik single. So they pull ahead, and they there's no excuse. They're in the ninth inning, they're down to their final out, and J.D. Martinez goes yard, and that was it for the Blue Jays. And, you know, a lot of people tuned into the game, I guess, after the Leaf game and kind of had a good feeling about it. I was one of them. Of course, I had the the Jays game on pretty much the entire time on my computer. So, you know, it seemed pretty good. Like, I was feeling pretty good heading in. But it's just, Rafael Dolis just hasn't been that guy this year. I, I understand last year he was, and I know a lot of people like Rafael Dolis for that, but... This year, I, I I don't I just hate to break it to people. His numbers don't show that he has been a top reliever and the guy that to be relied on right now. Will that change? I'm not saying it won't change. I think it could change, and I think there's an opportunity for that to change. But for the time being, he can't be coming out in the ninth inning. I'm, I just I completely disagree with the move. The first time, right when right away when he came in, I knew something was up, and I just didn't like it. We all know the story of how 
it just it wasn't a very good feeling in terms of any sort of momentum or how you felt about the Blue Jays' chances to win. It's just base runners after base runners, slowly and slowly, the Red Sox were getting guys on base. And I just, you know, roughly the least, four hits and one one inning. And of course, three earned runs, one walk, and one strikeout. So to close off a series like that in the rubber match against the leading team in the AL East, it's inexcusable for my opinion. And if you want to beat teams like Boston in, 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 uh, in the case of this year, that can't be happening. For a team that wants to compete like the Jays, I understand with all the situations they've been through, but... Charlie Montoyo, uh, him and Dolis, and I, I do blame Charlie Montoyo for yesterday's loss. I disagree with you, Bryson. Um, I mean, what's the alternative? Like, if you talk Jordan about... Romano. Well, well, think, like, what's the highest leverage situation? Rafael Dolis came into the game, and he's supposed to get outs of the 8, 9, and 1 hitter. Like, and, and you bring in Romano and Chatwood. Chatwood gets the top of the lineup. Romano gets the middle of the lineup. You're throwing Delise out against the bottom of the lineup. It might be the ninth inning, but it's the lowest leverage situation for any of the relievers. So that's why I don't disagree with the move. You have Chatwood, who is, you know, by ERA, probably the best reliever in the bullpen. He has a 0.56 ERA. He comes out against, I think it was a 2, 3, and 4 hitters in the Red Sox lineup. You don't want Delise in that situation. It's going to be 7-5 in the 7th or 7-5 in the ninth. If you're choosing to throw Delise against 8-9-1 and one or 2-3-4, and four, I choose 8-9-1 and one any day. So that's why I don't disagree with this. He used the relievers based on the leverage, based on who they would be facing in the lineup. And I think that's why, you know, Charlie Montoyo managed this perfectly. Maybe he could could have had a quicker hook on Dolise. You saw he was struggling. Straw, he couldn't get the third out. Take him out before that home run by J.D. Martinez. Sure, that's a fair point of criticism, but criticizing him for putting Dolise in in the least leverage situation, the lowest leverage situation in the ninth, I don't disagree with that. I See, that's, I think, where I'm at a little bit because, like, when you look at Tyler Chatwood, he struck out Alex Verdugo and J.D. Martinez and then got Xander Bogarts to fly out. And then you look at Romano, again, like, that's just where I'm at. You you have your best guys. You look at not necessarily what inning it is. I mean, you, you pay attention to that, but you look at where do, where do we seriously need outs? And when in the top of the eighth, obviously, Romano was able to struck out Devers and then get uh, Renfro and Vasquez to, to uh, also record outs. But with Dolis, I just I, I feel like he should be able to get the bottom of the Boston order out and think of it this way i think say you put him in uh the seventh or the eighth inning instead of the ninth and he gives up those runs then it's not necessarily a safe situation maybe it's i don't know extra innings at this point or you're you're planning for extras that's just kind of where i'm at because like obviously there's no guarantee that dolis was going to have that outing a couple innings ago but that's also something you got to consider like if if the top of the boston order is the most dangerous then that's where i'm firing at all cylinders and saying okay we've gotten the best guys out now let's let's shut the door and Dolis just was not able to do that unfortunately yeah like I, I look at it from a different point because I I think in terms of where these people hit in the lineup and the lineup turning over from eight nine one I understand that it could be considered a low leverage situation but when you're leading by one run against the leading team in the American League East that's not a low le- leverage situation I completely disagree with that standpoint I think the fact that you're leading in the ninth inning alone against a team like Boston in the rubber match in a divisional series. Everything about that screams a high leverage situation for me. So that's why I disagree with the move. And, um, you know, I know 
on paper, it looks good, but this is part of the criticism that Charlie Montoyo gets is that he overthinks it. And when you're looking at the numbers and these advanced metrics, it doesn't always fall in your favor. And in this case yesterday, it didn't fall in your favor. And if you're going to be relying on that for the rest of the year, it's just, I'm not saying it's going to go like this every time, but there's just, it's not very, it's just not going to be a very confident move. I, I don't think so at all. I just, Rafael Dolis in particular, he just hasn't shown it this year. I like, I don't know his, it, advanced metrics or anything like that when he's pitching against the bottom of the order but a 552 ERA I think that says enough and I understand that there's time for him to figure it out but for the time being there's got to be some sort of shuffle in between that but I don't look at it like a low leverage situation because of where the lineup turned because guess what you got JD Martinez to take you deep so regardless the lineup turned over and maybe that work that's where it comes in Mark where he could have been pulled earlier but the fact that you're leading by one run in the ninth inning against the Red Sox in the rubber match when they're first place and when you're ch- when you're chasing them now, that screams high leverage for me, and I think that says enough. Well, he never would have faced G.D. Martinez if he got the eight and nine batters out, but he gave that's, up that's singles the risk to, you take. to Bobby yeah. Dahlbeck and whoever the ninth hitter is, Michael Chavis. He gave up yeah. singles to those guys. So, I mean, what would you have preferred? If, if you don't want Delise coming out in the ninth, who, what, how would you prefer him used or not used at all? Well, in that case, first of all, he's just coming back from the injured list, right? And all year he's been dealing with that calf injury. I just, I wanted to see something different. I thought when Jordan, I thought Jordan Romano came in an inning too early. And as much as Romano has shown his struggles this year as well, he's been better than Dolis. So maybe they flip roles. Maybe you take the chance on that because I don't know how many times Dolis is kind of set up in the ninth inning. Just because this year alone, obviously, the lack of a, closer set in stone just hasn't been there due to injuries and due to the fact that Kirby Yates went down uh, late in the spring so I don't know the entire numbers of the amount of appearances he's made in the eighth inning or even seventh inning but for the time being I think you gotta you gotta try something different with him that's all I'm saying because we've seen it a few times now so you would prefer Dolis in the eighth and the ninth try it I I don't know if they've I don't know how many times they have tried it but but yeah. then he'd be facing like the five six seven hitters instead of the eight nine hitters I don't know. To me, it's like if he can't get the eight and nine hitters out, it's only going to go worse against the five, six, seven hitters or the two, three, four hitters if he comes out in the seventh. So that's why I throw him out in the ninth. And that's why I agree with what Montoyo did. Let me just take a look here. I don't think Dolis has pitched in the eighth inning this year from what I'm looking at. Um, No, he hasn't. He hasn't pitched in the eighth inning this year. Tommy Malone. Nope. Doesn't look like it. So there you go. I'm just saying, try something. If if it had stacked up differently, if if the lineups had been that it was, you know, seven, eight, nine in the oh no, he has inning, sorry, here then, we go two innings. Yeah, okay, seven. If it was seven, eight, nine in the eighth inning, and then one, two, three in the ninth. Yeah, I completely agree. Like one, two, three in the ninth, you go with Romano, or you know, if you want to experiment, you have two runs. It's not. Ideally, it's not too much of a high leverage situation because you do have a two-run lead, no one on base. Maybe you go with Chatwood in that yeah. situation. But Even the seventh inning? And then try Chatwood in the eighth? Yeah. like I'm willing to experiment if the yeah. lineups had worked out differently. But it's just the fact that it worked out that way that I think Montoya was right to use Delise in that situation. But we can agree to disagree on that. So do you guys just think that... Like- I guess the only criticism from you two is that he just should have been pulled earlier. And of course, credit goes to the Red Sox for, they're obviously a good team. This didn't happen against Baltimore or anything like that. But I don't know. I just, right away, I just didn't have a good feeling. I, I don't know if you guys disagree or not, but or about that, maybe before he even started pitching. But a lot of people were criticizing that from what I, I have seen. I just, 
I, I don't know what I don't know what what happened yesterday. Yeah, I think after he gives up, because he gives up those two leadoff singles, he strikes yeah, right out um, Hernandez at, at the top of the lineup. But then I think he should have been removed after the at bat against Alex Verdugo because he threw a wild pitch in that at bat. He really just seemed like he didn't have it at all. I think he should have been removed after that at bat, right before JD Martinez. So then, who comes in though in that situation? That's a question. Joel Payamps was yeah. warming up in the bullpen all game. I think he would have been probably the first guy out. Um, and I think in that situation, if Delise is really struggling, I think he's better than um, Joel Payamps is better than Delise. So that's who I would bring out just because he was warm. What about you, Jacob? Yeah, see, I'm trying to look here and this app that I'm using doesn't have the IL beside some of these players. So I had to switch a little for a second, but <laughs> yeah, I, I, I probably would have put Joel Pamps. Uh, I, I won't disagree with that. Uh, I don't think you put someone like Jordan Romano out for a second inning. Uh, that's just not the right option, especially against it. Like, especially with him working so much in the, the previous series, I think he deserves that day off or that, that extra inning off. So it looks like that's who they would have had to pitch. Like you can't even say you say you want to throw Anthony Kay, and I don't know why you would do that. But obviously he's starting today, so not a lot of options. Yeah, yeah. That that's the thing. Like you have, I guess Jeremy Beasley, probably Joel Pamps. That's I think oh, how I would God put no. it. Uh, yeah, that, that's yeah. the thing. They just there's there's not too many options. That's I think so. That's why I would have uh, I think gone with Pamps. All right. Well, this series aside, Blue Jays still doing fairly well they've still got a Can't good track complain. record in the last month of play they're still you know within a couple games of the AL East lead not that it matters because it's mid mid-may but still going well the hitting is still still working it's just rough around the edges a little bit this series which is <laughs> totally okay let's talk about some of the offensive performances from this series because we got really good streaks by Vladimir Guerrero Jr. Teoscar Hernandez Lourdes Goriel Jr. before he got um, day-to-day injury and was out for the last game of the series but some really good performances um, all three of those guys had three hits in Tuesday's game um, on Wednesday Marcus Simeon had two hits a home run and two walks um, also on Wednesday Teoscar Hernandez had two hits and a walk um, and then Thursday of course we were talking about it but Guerrero chipped in Teoscar Hernandez chipped in Marcus Simeon chipped in um, to get the Blue Jays back and of course Bo Bichette has also been someone who's been doing exceedingly well in the lineup. Um, We've talked about it before, but without George Springer, the Blue Jays are getting things done. Um, What are some of the standout offensive performances for you from this series? Um, To be honest with you, yeah, like just uh, going back to game one, that was probably one of the best games of the season for the Jays. I think you touched on that earlier, Mark. And pretty much a lot of people contributed that that game alone. And of course, you had Hunjin Ryu go seven innings, which they need. Takes the load off of the bullpen, and then you can send out other guys to close it out in a low non-leverage situ- or low leverage situation. Sorry, but yeah, for going back from game one, Randall Grichuk has two RBIs, Guriel has one RBI, uh, Hernandez, Bichette, Semyon, all climbing on board. So that game alone, the first game of the series, seemed like a complete performance. And of course, game two, I, I kind this is where I kind of give the I cut some them some slap because of course before they even touched the bat, uh, they were down five nothing, and right away that takes away the momentum. It just kind of, it's a letdown. And then, of course, in the first inning alone, they had, actually, the Jays had runners on second and third. They were supposed to. And then Marcus Semyon made one little mistake. He blew by the stop sign at third base. And, of course, that kind of also took away a little bit of momentum. And the Jays only came across with one run there. And then they didn't get anything going, really, until the seventh inning. 
uh, until Semyon homered, but then the next inning, Christian Vasquez kind of put it to bed. So a lot of momentum shifters and a lot of disappointments. That game was pretty disappointing overall. But either way, Marcus Semyon obviously had two RBIs that game. And Vladimir Guerrero Jr., of course, contributed. And then if you want to go to the game yesterday, where we, we were just talking about, uh, either way, it w- that was another one where the Jays had to, they went up early, they fell behind mid, and then they tied the game up late, and then they took the lead late for a little bit. And of course, that also comes from Randall Grichik. He was one of the uh, standouts for me this series. Another uh, two RBIs from last night, Teoscar Hernandez, Vladimir Guerrero Jr., again, one RBI, Bichette, one RBI. Uh, Biggio and RBI, Davis and RBI. So there's a lot of actually, a lot of contributors from this series alone. I think it was really balanced out. I don't really look at one guy and say, this is the guy this series. A lot of people were doing or contributing in their own little ways. And um, talking about from the starting pitching is what Steven Matz obviously did not have a very good start. He did push them through six innings. I think the Jays, of course, are trying to push their starters to pitch a little bit deeper than they usually would before they handed things off to the bullpen. And for Steven Matz, he did go six innings, but he gave up 10 hits. And, you know, after a a good first few starts, it just, it hasn't gone well on paper or by the numbers for Steven Matz. Another, uh, his ERA continues to climb to 469. But overall, in terms of the offense, to go back to your question mark, a lot of people this series where I want to balance, I balance things out and not say, or highlight one guy, because I think a lot of people contributed. And then if you really want me to nitpick and pick a guy, I think Randall Grichuk will be one of those guys a few times this series where he had multi-RBI games. And of course, Vladimir Guerrero Jr. continued to uh, put RBIs up, at least one RBI up through uh, pretty much most of these games uh, alone. Yeah, I'll echo that with uh, Grichuk. He was actually, he was 5 for 14 this series, so just under a 333 average. Uh, four RBIs throughout the series. And I think that's a little bit more impressive because think of it, like all throughout this season, we've been saying when Springer comes back, he's the primary center fielder. And I don't think that really anybody disagrees with that. And Randall Grichik's come in and he's made that extremely difficult to just give that to Springer. I mean, yes, realistically, George Springer will get that role, but how do you, how do you just say to Randall Grichik, your bat's out of the lineup considering he's been so good. And for me, I think that's just the most impressive part is, he was, uh, I'm willing to say it, his playing time was a little bit in jeopardy considering Blue Jays had three starting outfielders. They really had four starting outfielders and it looked like he was going to be the odd man out. But yeah, he's, you know what, he's really taken things by storm. Uh, his uh, his on-base percentage right now is at 317. Average has dipped a little bit throughout uh, the, the month of May. It's at 280 right now. But you know what, a 280 average is a lot better than a lot of other guys in the league. So I think Randall Grichik's been fantastic, and he's just somebody I think we got to kind of watch. I think this sort of reminds me a couple of years ago, back during the middle infield days of uh, Troy Tulowitzki, Devin Travis, and uh, Ryan Goins. It was, who's going to play? You know, Devin Travis is great, but he's always injured. And then Ryan Goins, I, I think he said a quote, I think it was in 2016, where he said he's trying to make managers have the hardest job as possible to figure out who plays. And you know what? Randall Grichik's doing that right now. He he's not a guy that you take out of the lineup because of performances like this. And I think that's why it's a little bit more impressive to me just because there was no guarantee that he was going to play much throughout these last couple of years in Toronto. And he's proven that you can't take him out. Yes, he could regress when Springer comes back. Maybe if you put him into a primarily a designated hitter role, there's a chance of maybe his average dips a little bit. But for now, Randall Grichik's been, I don't know. Can I call him their MVP? I don't know. But he's been good enough, I think, to justify not only staying in the lineup, but not even really being on the cusp of losing his spot. He's, he's just been ridiculously good all season. So I'm just 
I'm happy for him. And it's just, it, I think that's why it's a little bit more impressive because he, there was no guarantee that he was going to gonna play much. Yeah, he's really played himself into a starting position. And if we're talking about ways to get him into the lineup, I think one way is to place Lourdes Gurriel Jr. on the injured list. Because he's day-to-day right now. But if, like, we know what happens with day-to-day injuries on the Blue Jays. Like, we saw Ryan Barucki. Oh, he was just day-to-day, and now he's on the 10-day IL. Of course, that happens all the time. So, if we're talking ways to fit him into the lineup with George Springer potentially coming back, we've seen Springer is probably, I would guess, a week, a week and a half away. He started running. Um, he's near full baseball activities, but of course they're going to take it slow. So if we're talking about once Springer is coming back, how do you get Lourdes Gurriel Jr. and, and George Springer and Randall Grishik and Teoscar Hernandez, how do you fit them all in the lineup? One way is Gurriel's injured, put him on the injured list. That opens up a spot. I'm not saying that's the best way to do it. I'm just saying it's a possibility. Yeah, I mean, and first of all, for Lourdes Gurriel Jr., he hasn't exactly played well this season. It's not like he is swinging a hot bat and the Jays are kind of stuck. But yeah, George Springer is likely going to need a rehab assignment, according to Ross Atkins as well. And he is, I guess, ramping up uh, running. But I I still think we're a few weeks away, but we are getting close. We are getting close. So that is a good thing. And of course, hopefully this time when George Springer comes back, that's the guy that is well, first of all, hopefully that's the last time he goes on the injured list because obviously they need him and somebody that would be a really big boost. Again, we we know the addition he he's had and the impact he's had in his first, I think he's only played three or four games as much as it's only been DH. He's had a few clutch hits late in games and he had that one clutch home run in one of the games he did play. But yeah, for Lourdes Gurriel Jr., if he goes on the injured list, obviously that opens a spot for uh, Randall Gritchick and everyone to kind of stay in every day, but either not, if not, you know, I, I feel like the only way to do it is obviously people are going to have to come out at during some days, but you get to rotate, I guess, the DH position between Teoscar, Grichik, and then a few other guys. But, um, you know, it's it's tough because the Jays have a lot of depth. They have a deep lineup. We know this. And for Randall Grichik taking advantage of this time without George Springer was probably the best thing for him. And he took advantage of it. So you got to give him credit for that because if George Springer wasn't injured, Randall Grichik probably wouldn't be having this opportunity or had the opportunity that came across for him. So that happens if Gurriel does go on the injured list. And like I said, hasn't been playing well this season at all. He's got an average of 228 with an OPS of 561. Maybe a little bit of a reset for him just uh, to sit out for a couple of weeks. But if it's that bad, obviously it'll probably lead to that. And if it's not, then he's going to be day to day. But the other question is, does if Gurriel stays active, does that kind of take away some of his playing time now? Because I wouldn't be surprised if it does what do you guys think of that? If Gurriel does stay active, uh, do you think he'd be the odd man out for the time being and take a little bit more days on the bench instead of playing? Yeah, I think that's likely, honestly, because like if he, I think if he's truly day to day and he doesn't go on the injured list, then he'll just be that day to day and he'll stay. He'll kind of see a regression in uh, in playing time. Jonathan Davis, unfortunately, until George Springer comes back, is. He's not been doing too well this season, but he's kind of their only option with a 158 average this season and a 319 on base percentage. So he's not really been the offensive uh, uh, weapon that you want him to be, but he's a good runner. You know, I wouldn't say that his defense is bad. You know, he's a good guy to to come off the bench, but I still like I feel like if he's healthy, then he will kind of get the one up over Gurriel until he's healthy. Just considering that the last thing you want to do is risk another injury 
even if it like even if Guriel is struggling, you don't want him to then get injured and not play and not be able to rebound because as we saw like what was it a 300 average last season like he's an offensive weapon for this team and he's a big part of it so and I feel like if he's truly day-to-day then he will just sit some time out and maybe give Jonathan Davis a chance and then when Springer comes back well we'll open that can of worms when it eventually gets to us because I have I have no idea how the managers are going to deal with it yeah I think when Springer's back I think the odd man out is obviously Jonathan Davis, but then also I think to get playing time for all the outfielders, because all of them are hitting right now, it's going to be Rowdy Telez. Because he only gets in the game as a DH because Guerrero's going to be, or or first baseman, Guerrero's going to be first base or DH every single day. You take Rowdy Telez out of the lineup, you put one of the outfielders, one of the four starting outfielders that you have, Grishik, Springer, um, Hernandez and Guriel, you put one of them in the DH spot, you put the rest in the outfield. Um, that solves a problem for me. You keep all their bats in the lineup. You keep the defensive, the, the good defensive players, whether it's, you know, probably Grishik and Springer are the best defensive players. It's not really plus defense that you're getting from Hernandez or Guriel. You keep the good guys in the outfield. You cycle one of them in and out of the, um, DH spot. That that solves a problem for me. But let's talk about another playing time conundrum for the Blue Jays. Santiago Espinal. A lot of people have been talking about him getting in the lineup more. They like what they see from him, especially on defense. He hasn't been a black hole offensively. What do you think about him getting more playing time? Should the Blue Jays emphasize him getting more playing time over someone like Kevin Biggio? Over Kevin Biggio? I mean... Well, that's the only way I, he'll get yeah, playing time. I, I, I feel like it would be a real wake-up call to him, to be completely honest. But I don't see why you keep Santiago Espinal out of the lineup because he, like, he he's been really good this season. Two sixty-three average in uh, coming out of his last game against the Red Sox. He played in the game yesterday, but like all throughout the season, he's been towing with a three hundred average. It's only dipped a little bit as the last couple games, and I like I don't really. I don't know why you don't give him playing time. Like the thing is, is going into this season, I thought he was the was going to be their bench guy, and he's going to get into a bunch of games here and there. But then they brought Panic in, and they just gave him that role, which I kind of understand. But yeah, like I don't know why you don't give Santiago Espinal a chance, especially because his defense has been it's been pretty good. Like there have been a few plays in that Red Sox series where his arm and his glove has been tested, and he was able to make those plays. So I'd give him a shot. Like, is he? is he the their guy right now like would they be would the blue jays be willing to give him a starting role right now i'm not sure i feel like maybe they'd platoon you know maybe if you want to throw bijou in the outfield give uh well, it, that's assuming guriel doesn't play but if you want to throw him in the outfield so you can sort of keep him in the lineup then you can fit espinal at third but i think the blue jays should at least give him a chance to platoon and get give him maybe this uh, four game series against the Rays, maybe you give him two or three of those games as a starter. D- definitely not a bad thing to try, especially considering that like there's no reason not to, and he's been he's been good this season and, and last season. Like I- I've I've liked him, so I would give him a shot and see what happens. Like I believe they have team control for the next four or five years over him, something like that. So why not see what you got out of him? Obviously, Panics here on a one year deal. Uh, Marcus Simeon's here on a one year deal, so see what you got with him especially with all these young prospects coming up which 
that's uh, something we'll talk about. They've got a lot of uh, they've got a log jam coming up. But with Santiago Espinal, I would see what you got with him, and if it works, I mean, if it works, it works, and if it doesn't, then I I think the Blue Jays still do want to try and work with him because he will, I think, be a, a at least a, a key player in this team until we eventually get to the logjam of the prospects coming up. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're talking about here an, a surplus in the outfield and how we're going to fit people in. And for Santiago Espinal, I just, I don't see it. I understand that he does, he, he technically he does deserve the playing time and he has been good. But in this lineup, I don't see any room for him because in my opinion, I don't think you'd take out Kevin Biggio like that. And I mean, the only way I would consider it is if, uh, I think Jacob, you mentioned it just now. If you do more of like a, a platoon, maybe when a lefty's pitching, you throw an Espinal, Espinal a little bit more, and then of course when a righty's pitching, you keep Bijou. And that's the only really thing I can think of because looking at Bijou's splits, he hasn't exactly been hitting the ball off of um, off the barrel against lefties this year alone. Against lefties, Bijou's got an average of 200 and an OPS of 539. So he hasn't been hitting too well against lefties, but against righties, he has been hitting uh, relatively well, I think. So uh, an OPS of 671, but a, a slugging percentage, or sorry, on-base percentage of 330. So he looks a little bit more comfortable like that. But other than that, I don't see any room for him. I mean, we're talking about the fact when George Springer comes back with the outfield, and then, of course, the DH position, that obviously would impact the infield a little bit more because, Mark, you were talking about Rowdy Telez, but, of course, there's going to be days where you can't always have that DH on Rowdy Telez. There's going to be other guys that need maintenance days, like Semyon Bichette, who are going to be rotating through the DH spot. Maybe that opens up a spot for Espinal. But the other thing, too, is Joe Panic is coming back, Jacob. I think you brought that up again. And the Jays like Joe Panic. So when Joe Panic comes back, I mean, I don't... I don't even see an opening for Santiago Espinal to start then, unless the Jays obviously move on from Panic. But right now, I don't see, I don't have any sort of indication or seen any reason why the Jays are going to do that right now. I'm not saying I agree with it, but Joe Panic is a guy the Jays really like, and everyone here and everyone listening would understand that and knows that. So, unfortunately for Santiago Espinal, it's just that he has a lot of people ahead of him, and he's been in the odd man out quite a few times. I know he's one of the obviously three on the bench right now, other than Jonathan Davis, who's serving as a fourth outfielder, and Reese McGuire, who's platooning a catch with Danny Jansen. Other than that, there really isn't a lot of openings for him in this lineup. And I don't take and if I, I don't take Kevin Bijou out of the lineup and I don't reduce Kevin Bijou's playing time. I think that's one of your young stars and he's developing at the major league level. And I don't know how benefit or beneficial it is to Bijou if you take him out of the lineup a little bit more than what you are now. So that's why I disagree with that right now. If it continues obviously as we head into this, the warmer months Maybe I consider it, and then, of course, it would also depend on the performance from Espinal when he does get in the lineup, but I understand the fans like Espinal in, and a lot of people don't really like Joe Panic from the fans' perspective. I personally don't have a problem with Joe Panic, but when you have these guys ahead of him, it just it makes it very difficult to fit things in. We're like a surplus of the outfield, a DH spot that will obviously kind of be filtered in throughout other players as well. It's just it, a lot of cards are stacked against Espinal right now, and uh, unless injuries happen which we can't predict obviously i don't see it changing anytime soon yeah you nail it on the head bryson i have nothing to add there because i completely agree i don't think espinal is going to take playing time from bgo and of course we've seen before they seem to prefer panic um to bgo they um or to espinal they can't really send panic down because um he can just select free agency so they want to keep him in the organization to do that they have to keep him in the majors and that means Espinal is the odd man out. It sucks, but maybe, and this moves to our next conversation, but maybe they use him as a trade chip. 
Um, doesn't seem like there's much room for him in the organization right now. So that's certainly a possibility. Um, speaking of trades, now we're going to combine this conversation with another conversation about the top 100 prospects. There was eight Blue Jay prospects in the top 100, according to, I think it was Baseball America that released it this week. Um, that's a lot. <laughs> like that's the most of any team in baseball. And you have a couple new additions. You have Gabriel Moreno bumping into that top 100. So that's very exciting for the Blue Jays as an organization. However, with all this talent coming up, some of it is going to inevitably move. Um, as we approach the trade deadline, this is a very early conversation. Of course, we're months away. We don't know where the Blue Jays will be at that point. We don't know where other teams will be at that point. We don't know who's available. But of the list of the guys that are on the top 100 for the Blue Jays, who do you think they're going to be willing to move? Um, see, that that's a good one. There's obviously a few untouchables at the top of the list, but one guy in particular that I've always kind of said on this podcast that could be, or I can see as a trade chip, I don't know if you guys agree with me or not, I really actually don't know, is Jordan Groshans. I think that's a guy that is unfortunately expendable, and with the influx or the um, sorry, the surplus of the infield now when you want to talk about in the farm system. If you need to move him to upgrade at, like, let's say pitchers, because that's probably what it would be for, starting pitchers in the bullpen, I think that's a guy that would go. I, I think there definitely is a few untouchables. Obviously, Austin Martin would be one. I think Nate Pearson would be one. Simeon Woods Richardson would definitely be one. Now, near the bottom, too, there's uh, Arolvis, or uh, sorry, Arelvis Martinez. Um, maybe. Uh, Gabriel or Gabriel Moreno, sorry. I don't think uh, the Jays would be interested in moving him. I, I'd be very surprised if he's moved right now. I just, based off of how we started uh, with New Hampshire and AA, Mark, you've seen him firsthand this year. I would be very disappointed if he was one guy that was traded. Just And also because, obviously, when you look at the depth chart with the catchers right now, there, there's, there's an opening for him within the next couple of years, I mean, in my opinion. And, of course, Alejandro Kirk... Maybe I, I don't see it either. I know he's injured, so what value does he really have right now? And Alec Manoa, I mean, he's probably going to be up here within the next few months, but no, he, he's not going anywhere. So really, when I look at this list, because obviously the Jays have eight out of uh, eight top 100 prospects within the organization, which is the most in baseball. So that's pretty impressive based on this farm system that the Atkins and Shapiro regime have rebuilt since coming here in 2016. The only guy that I would right now move without a hesitation would be Jordan Groshans. I mean, I you guys maybe probably have a different opinion, but in terms of people that would be more expendable, but I think with some of these guys, you guys would agree in terms of untouchables right now. But if I had to consider two names out of these eight people, I would consider Groshans and Martinez. I mean, nobody else, and I'm not even keen on moving Martinez. The only guy I would move right now is Groshans. And it, it's tough because when you're a competing team like the Jays, and we know that buying comes expensive. This is the unfortunate part of the game where you have to take a chance and give up these prospects for a win-now mode. We've seen it. We saw it firsthand in 2015. Did it work out entirely for the Jays? Yes and no at the same time. You got a playoff run uh, for the first time in years. But unfortunately, it just didn't pan out in the actual postseason. And of course, in 2016, the same way. And we see it all across the game. If you want to look at the Houston Astros, I know everyone knows about that. But in terms of their starting rotation, in the year they won the World Series, they had Garrett Cole, who they traded for. They had Justin Verlander, who they traded for. And a lot of these guys were guys that the Astros traded for. And it just it's just a part of the game in baseball. But um, for the Jays, who have sat back now for, what, three, four years to rebuild the farm system, they have now leverage if they do want to go out and buy. I know last year, when you want to talk about the deadline as well, they weren't 
they didn't they really did they did a really good job because they bought low and they didn't give up a lot they gave a lot gave up a lot of low level prospects a lot of player to be named laters and they were very low risk moves in terms of the addition of Taiwan Walker and of course Robbie Ray and now we know that Travis Bergen is back in the Jays organization so really the Jays gave up nothing so I mean that that's a pretty successful deadline for a team that was on the verge of competing but when you want to look at it a year later it gets more interesting because obviously we're back to a full 162 game season and now the Jays are saw or looked at as serious contenders within the AL East and of course a wild card spot we know how they're viewed around the game how aggressive are the Jays going to be this year I think that's a question that we don't even know the answer to right now I think we can see another possibility where you look at last year where you see a similar deadline or do the Jays go out this year and make a big splash we know that uh, for the first time already this season in terms of the trade deadline I think the Jays are now linked to uh, it was it was somebody it was Barrios or I'm sorry, like, I think it was Barrios on the Minnesota Twins. That's the first name that we've seen. And, of course, the Minnesota Twins for the first time, uh, one of the, are a horrendous start for them, and they're supposed to be a competing team. So I don't know if the Twins really do that with Barrios, but the point is there's going to be a lot of names that pop up within the next couple of months in terms of pitchers, relievers, and in terms of the injuries right now, you have to imagine the Jays are going to pounce. So... My prediction right now is they will be a little bit more aggressive than they were in 2020. I'm not saying they're going to completely unravel the farm system. But one of these guys, I think there's a really high chance that one of these guys are moved. I really do. If that one guy is Austin Martin, I am going with him to whatever fan base it is because I swear if, if they... Okay, <laughs> Another they, guy, Marcus, and I want to hear his opinion I, on that. I don't... The, the Blue Jays were so lucky in getting him. If they trade him, I am leaving the fan base, I swear. But um, <laughs> <laughs> anyways... I don't, here's the thing. I'll save this. I'll try and be a little uh, cautious with how I say this because it's, we have another segment that we'll talk about in a second, but I don't think many of these trade pieces or the, many of these prospects will be used as trade pieces because they have guys that fill similar roles on the current team. Now, the thing is, is as you mentioned, Aurelvis Martinez, he's a shortstop. Uh, Jordan Groshans is an infielder. Austin Martin's listed as an infield slash outfielder. And, the Blue Jays, like, they have infielders and outfielders right now who are locked up for, for quite a few years with uh, Bichette, with with uh, Kevin Biggio. So they have guys already who kind of take over similar roles, and that's why I'm saying there's kind of a logjam, and I've been saying that all throughout th- this year, really. I-, I think the Blue Jays might be-, be more willing to use these prospects and trade guys on the current team for pieces. And that's just the way I see it. I have a few names in mind. I, I think if if a player were to be traded, I think it would be Kevin Biggio just because of his versatility in the field. Uh, hear me out. Do okay. Do, do I think it's likely? Not really. But if I had to pick a trade piece, it would be Kevin Biggio right now. It just depends on if teams are willing to look at him. I I, I looked at. Uh, the you know actually I'll, I'll try to save this for the next segment but there are a few teams that I've looked at that could be using an infielder within the next couple of years and maybe they want to trade some pitchers that they have locked up but yeah I think if there is a trade it might come from within just because the Blue Jays have the flexibility now that being said I don't think it's likely so please nobody attack me on Twitter I have like four followers please don't please don't harass me but uh, but point is is I think that there are some young guys all throughout the organization, but primarily on the current major league team that could be used as as legitimate trade pieces. I disagree with you there, big time. I Well, I'm not disagreeing that Kevin Biggio might be moved. I think Kevin Biggio may end up being moved. 
But given the fact that we were just talking about taking playing time away from him, like, I don't think any team is going to break the bank to get Kevin Digio of all players, right? He's not going to be the top prospect in that deal. Like maybe, like maybe you send Guriel and Biggio, like that would get a team's attention. That would get a team's money and prospects and, you know, big name guys, but someone like Biggio, that alone, he's not going to move the ticker in any way. So that's why I agree with Bryson. I think they're not going to move anyone from a position of organizational, um, um, uh, you know, deficit. They're not going to move someone like Simeon Woods Richardson, Alec Manoa, Nate Pearson, because they need pitching. Like, that's just a fact. So they're not going to move any of those. They're going to move guys from positions of organizational strength. So whether that's catcher, I guess you could consider that, depending how you view Riley Adams, Danny Jansen, if he's kind of a long-term solution, Alejandro Kirk as well. Um, if you consider infield, you know, a position of organizational strength, which I think pretty much everyone does, I think that's where you're looking. I think you're looking at, God forbid, Austin Martin, but also Jordan Groshans or Alvis no, no, Martinez. No, 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 no. Don't like, even say Those his name. are the guys you're looking at. I like that's where the Blue Jays have strength. That's you're going to have to give someone up if you want to really that's compete this season. Yep. That that's how it works. Yeah, it's painful, but it's how it works. So that's what I see happening, and that's who I see the Blue Jays giving up. Certainly not a pitcher in the top 100, but they're going to have to part with someone. Um, who that is, I don't know, but it's going to be one of the infield prospects. The one thing I do remember is obviously before uh, the Jays got Springer, and it was this was early on in the offseason when they were kind of linked to Francisco Lindor, was I believe it was Alejandro Kirk and Lord Escurio Jr. Those were the two names that were rumored to be one of the, I guess, asking or one of the people that would go the other way if the Jays in Cleveland made or made that deal. Do you think it's it's a good point, and it's actually interesting because I never thought of Guriel till now. I know the value probably isn't there right now because of his performance this year, but he's definitely a guy that I wouldn't be surprised if he's moved either. I mean, I would not be surprised. I'm not saying it's going to happen because I do agree. I don't think it will be anybody like that. But if if I had to choose one guy for the sake of it, I think it would be Lourdes Gurriel Jr. And, you know, Alejandro Kirk's obviously been thrown around a few times as well. I think he was um, thrown around and I think it was one of the pitchers from P- Pittsburgh. I think it was Chad cool. I think there was a deal there, some sort of interest from Pittsburgh in Alejandro Kirk. So he seems to have value as well, but it's very interesting because we still don't even know what extent the Jays will be going this trade deadline, because obviously pitching will be something they would likely, I would say all three of us can agree that they are going to go out and get, but what they give up, I don't know. And Austin Martin, if like worse comes to worse and you're making a big splash, I think you have to, you definitely have to consider him part of that deal. Sorry, Jacob. But I still think he is definitely one of the untouchables as of now. Unless something changes or we're way off with the philosophy or the approach that they're planning to do where they're going to make a massive splash, because I don't think they are as of now, but I do think they will be adding slowly. Like Jose Bar- uh, Barrios is one of many names are, are going to come up for the bullpen. But either way, for now, I think just I think it's Jordan Groshans that's the most expendable for me. But it's just it's just the way it works. Like what I said and Mark just said too. You have an a surplus of infielders within the farm system because think about it too. Is that you have Jordan Groshans, but you also have Austin Martin, and whoever comes up first, they're pretty much taking playing time away from the guy below them. And it, it's just how how long are you going to be able to handle that for? I know right now they're fine because they're still in the, the development stage, but in a couple of years, it's going to change and they're going to be closer to major league ready because Austin Martin is definitely a couple of years away 
I mean, I would say at the most, I would say within a couple of years, you would see Austin Martin. Jordan Groshans, I still don't know exactly when. I mean, probably not this year. I thought I had a little bit more of a, I was a little bit more optimistic at the beginning of the spring that we would see him at some point this year. That just doesn't seem to be the case. But when you have an influx like this at these positions, and depending on how big the Jays will go at the deadline, nobody's really going to be untouchable in terms of the infielders in this uh, farm system. Yeah. Yeah. When we talked about moving Lourdes Gurriel Jr., I think that's something that has become more realistic as the season goes on because we were just talking about where do you play him if someone comes back like where do you play Teoscar Hernandez Randall Grishik I think it's become more of a reality that Lourdes Gurriel Jr. may be moved but at the same time I don't think the Blue Jays want to touch him just because he's so cheap like he's on a what a seven-year 20 million dollar deal or something like that he's just so cheap to the team and for someone who hit 300 last year not going to do that again I know full season but even if he hits 250, that is such insane value for a player that I don't think the Blue Jays want to part with someone like that. So it, difficult decisions all around. I, yeah, and also, I mean, I feel like it depends on how eager they are to win now. Like, Because realistically, I think we can say the Blue Jays, their competitive window, depending on whether you think it started now or it's still a year away, like it's going to be at least five to six years. And I believe Gurriel signed his deal in the the 2016 offseason so I think he has two or three years left on that so it is he here for that entire time I'm not sure and if he isn't do you get something from him like like realistically if he like you said Mark if he's hitting well enough to at least justify staying on the team then well then you have two questions do you keep him do you benefit from his services or do you try to improve on an area of the team that is clearly in need right now I mean I think we can argue Austin Martin, as I said, is listed as an infielder slash outfielder. So maybe you want to throw him in there. But other than him, I mean, Jonathan Davis is still on the team. But like basically the point is, is they have outfielders or guys that could be an outfielder. Whereas I don't know if the pitching is is as deep in the organization. So maybe you want to justify trading him. But again, you also I think you might need to throw in another name like the uh, the Lindor trade uh, with Biggio or sorry with Guriel, but maybe you want to throw in like a guy like Biggio as well and Guriel, and you could I think get get a decent return off of that but if you're putting in some of those untouchable prospects then you're get you're getting like Cy Young type uh, pitching out of that because I I would I'd be very surprised if the Blue Jays went and traded somebody like that but they got they got room uh, on this roster I think to be a little bit uh, creative with how they make moves and here's the thing, too. Here's an example, because, Jacob, I know you don't want any sort of involvement with Austin Martin or anything like that. But just to prove about this infield depth or the lack of infield, sorry, the infield depth that they have within the farm system. And if you want to look at a possible, just just for the sake of it, I don't, I'm not saying it's going to happen. There's There really is. This is like early stages of trade rumors in terms of a, a Barrios trade with Minnesota. I'm just saying Minnesota just lost one of, I guess, their key pieces within the organization, within their depth chart with Royce Lewis. They are short in terms of shortstop depth. It, 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 just an example. I'm not saying it's going to be any of those top guys, but in a possible trade, if you're going to get Barrios, and this is just me spitballing, you're going to have to give up an infielder. I mean, that's what Minnesota is going to want, and that's why it just comes to the extent of it. Do you try and hold on to Groshans Barton? Of course you do. And that's why if that happens, if the Jays are more sold on Groshans than someone like Aurelvis Martinez, that's also a guy that could be moved. So that's why I think it's either Groshans or Martinez, because I think those are the two guys for sure. 
And then these other guys like Austin Martin, I think that's way, way at the bottom of the list in terms of the their interest in moving them. But that's just a prime example now is that Minnesota is short on um, shortstop depth or depth within the infield. That is what a possible trade would look like. And if you want to include something without Groshans and Martin, then you may have to throw somebody in like Martinez. And that just comes with the sake of the game. And there's going to be so many other possibilities that come up within the next few months with other teams and other relievers. But that's just an example as of now because of the obviously recent report of the Barrios involvement or the interest from the Jays' side. All right. Well, that's still, you know, two plus months away. So exactly. let's I'm just leave that fun. as is now. We'll, of course, revisit it as the season develops. But let's end the podcast as we're kind of verging on going overtime here. But as always, we had another start from him this week. It's time for another segment of Alec Manoa Watch. Alec Manoa. He went six innings. Um, the Buffalo Bisons were playing the Worcester Red Sox um, at the new Polar Park down in Worcester. He went six innings, gave up four hits, one run, one walk, ten strikeouts. That one run was his first in AAA. Um, it came on a solo shot to Den Center. You were there. Yes, I was there. Explain. Um, what did you think? It was... Okay, so <laughs> I have like two conflicting thoughts about Alec Manoa right now. If Keeping this in the context of our predictions of when he's going to be called up to the majors, when he's going to make his major league debut. Two conflicting thoughts. The number one is seeing him in person, it kind of took the shine off of him a little bit. It made him seem more human. This wasn't his best start, but it made it seem more human. You know, he got behind in a few counts, gave up some hard contact. In addition to that home run to dead center, he gave up a, a, a line drive to left field, a double off the left field wall. So there was hard contact there. He was getting behind in counts a little bit. Still, very good start, right? Ten strikeouts, only one run, one walk. But it made him seem a little bit more human. And now I can, you know, entertain the thought of, why the Blue Jays might want to keep him down for a little bit longer. At the same time, the conflicting thought of this, the other side of this conversation for me, is the fact that the Blue Jays pushed back his start one day, so it lined up with Ross Stripling's start. Like, to me, that indicates he could be called up in two weeks, not two months. So this is where I'm like, he didn't have a great start, took the shine off of it for me, might... I. I would reasonably predict after seeing that start that he's two months away. But now he's lined up with Ross Stripling. Seems like he's two weeks away. So I have no idea where to put him. I have no idea where to adjust our expectations for him. Because of that, I'm going to stick with my prediction that I gave in our last Alec Manoa watch segment, which was July 11th. Maybe that's outrageously far away given what we know. But I'm sticking with it. I really just don't know what to expect at this point. See, I didn't change it last week. I think I stuck with July the 15th. I'm moving yes, it up. I'm okay. Yes. I'm going to move it up to June 15th. So one month. That's roughly. me. That's like me. Yeah. So yeah, I think like okay, realistically, is he going to stay there all of June and most of July? No, or in the minors that is. I don't think so. That would just be a waste of the season, waste of potentially getting to see what he's capable of in the majors. So I think Consider like what his ERA is is zero point fifty. So uh, unless he gets absolutely lit up in his next couple starts, I think he's coming up in 
three weeks, I think, about a, about a month from right now, so roughly three weeks from today. I don't see why you keep him in the minors, and that's why I'm going to say I'm moving it up to June 15th instead of July. Give him some time right before the summer, and then hopefully he's he can be an impact player for a very good portion of what looks to be a pennant race. Uh, you see, Mark, you were going on about it. I understand your conflicting yeah. reports and arguments. But you, of course, the la- the key detail is what you mentioned at the end was that they managed to line it up with Ross Stripling's spot in the rotation because, of course, that game alone, and I think I, I said it a few days ago, um, there it seemed because obviously Ross Stripling gave up the five runs in the first inning. It seems that a lot of connections to Mano was going on at the same night, and I think you know obviously everyone watching Stripling struggle. And a lot of people reporting, and of course, Mark, you were there for us as well, Mm -hmm. saying how good he looked, or how good he did look, how he's lined up with the Ross Stripling start. I mean, it seems like this is getting close. I mean, I I can't believe how each week, and it's spot on, because each week we do this, it gets more and more encouraging for us. And Jacob, you said June 15th. Well, you know, I'd like to have the same prediction as you, but I'm going to have to move it up to June one. I'm gonna go even. I'm gonna go even further. I'm not I was gonna go thinking before. of that. Wow, that's like that's like what ten days away. And you, you even, yep. And that's the part where Mark a week said and it. a half. I'm just saying the fact that he is on par with Ross Stripling's start. That is no coincidence. I'm not saying it happens the next start. Maybe the one after. I'm not gonna go before June. I, that I can guarantee. I think this is the earliest I will ever go now in terms of this Manoa watch segment. June one, but the fact that he's doing this, he's making a case. He's forcing. He might force their hand. And I think he already is to have this conversation. The lack of obviously innings pitched in the minor leagues is something would probably be one of the cons of having him up or one of the uncertainties. But he's making the case, and if he's, I mean, Jacob, you said the ERA in three starts. I think it's just been one walk or something like that. Not a lot of walks, one or two or three, was something like that. Making a case for it, and. and the, the key detail for me, which made me do this, was the fact what Mark said. He's on par with Ross Stripling's spot. So, June 1. Let's do it. Okay, well, and I'll finish it off by reading a quote from Ross Atkins. Um, he was on Sportsnet 590. And he said, quote, um, of Alec Manoa, obviously, he's been great, had a great offseason in spring training. He's always been a hard worker and extremely driven. He should be in the discussion to join the rotation, and he absolutely is in that discussion. So this isn't like the same type of, you know, if you go back to like 2019, like Atkins was always like KG with Vladimir Guerrero Jr., like he needs more development. They're always saying that kind of stuff. Not saying about Benoa, it seems like he's in that conversation, like Atkins said. So I might be stupid for keeping it at July 11th. I just... I have so many conflicting thoughts, but it, it's coming up to the time where it'll be, uh, you know, putting our predictions to the test. So we'll see what, what happens. We kind of run the gambit now between July 1st, or excuse me, June 1st, June 15th, July 5th, July 11th. So we'll see what happens. It should be an interesting few weeks. The hype is going to be absolutely crazy, and we'll see. I feel like... There was a bit of a buzz back in 2019 where all these guys were coming up. It's, you know, when is, when's Vladdy coming up? When's Biggio? When's Bichette coming up? And then Pearson the next year. Like, I feel like we're just going to constantly be looking at him every single start. And it's just, it's going to be crazy. I feel like there will be people that, that demand he comes up earlier 
than all of us. That I truly think we'll see some people on Twitter, but people in spring I'm, training were saying he should have yeah. made the team right from the start. Yeah, yeah, it'll. But the, there's also a lot of people that don't think he should be up because of the lack of minor league experience. So there are two sides to this, as much as a lot of people That's do me. think. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Yeah, it'll be it'll be a, a mess, but uh, he'll be up soon, I think. He's still at 35 professional innings. Yeah, exactly. Just That's putting the part that out where there, like, like mm, it's yeah. not. Yeah, I don't know. This I understand. is. I'm so shocked already that he's at this point in his development. So we'll see what happens. But we'll wrap it up there. Thank you to everyone who tuned in to this episode. Um, as always, you can follow us on social media at Section138Pod. You can listen and watch to our episodes on YouTube or Section138 on YouTube. And you can support our Patreon, patreon.com slash Section138Pod. And then lastly, you can rate and review our podcast on Apple Podcasts, which just helps Spread the word about what we're doing. Okay. Thank you to everyone who listens. We'll catch you next time.